Welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Well, welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Jeff Lemcooler, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Deidre Harmon. Deidre is a beef specialist at uh, North Carolina State University, and she's a research and extension position there. Deidre, good morning. Good morning, and thanks for having me this morning, Jeff. Oh, it's uh, it's my pleasure, and I tell you, it's uh, interesting. We're getting a little bit of this uh, residual rainfall from, from Hurricane Ida. Are you guys getting any of that? We, we are, and, and unfortunately we are. Actually, um, two weeks ago, we just had a tropical storm come through and we had quite a bit of flooding um, that you may or may not have heard about. So we're, we're still trying to clean up from, from the tropical storm two weeks ago. So this is actually the last thing that we need is, is more rain and more flooding issues. Um, so it's good for the grass, but, but not good for our flooding cleanup efforts. Oh, yeah, that's that is a big concern, and especially so. So you're in kind of the uh, mountainous area, of North Carolina. Is that correct? Yes, yes, I am. So I'm in the western part of the state. Um, so if you think about where most people know where Asheville, North Carolina, is at, and I'm centered in Waynesville, North Carolina, which is really basically right between. Asheville and the Tennessee border. So if you think about traveling uh, westbound on Interstate I-40, um, I'm centered kind of right between those two. And in those areas, the same kind of as eastern Kentucky, when we get a lot of rainfall in a short period of time, it unfortunately can lead to flooding as that water moves down the hills and picks up a lot of speed and it gets in those creeks and rivers. That's right. And about about two weeks ago, um, we had a tropical storm that just kind of sat on us and, and dumped quite a bit of rain. We had uh, reports of up to about 14 inches of rainfall. Um, we've had a lot of, of probably in the same with, with what's going on in Kentucky. We've had a lot of dead trees down and they won't let us get in those, those waterways to clear out those trees. So we had a, quite a bit of damming of water that, that eventually that dam broke and we had some flash flooding issues that really just just kind of took out everything in its path downstream. So um, we've got a lot of farmers that, that have lost all their vegetable crops. The corn silage crops have been flooded. Um, homes have been flooded. So we've been working diligently the last couple of weeks trying to get those cleaned up. Um, we've lost a lot of fencing. So uh, we've built quite a bit of fence over the last couple of days. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And um, hopefully everybody can get cleaned, everything cleaned up, but hopefully, um, you know, not too many people uh, were injured and, and or uh, uh, worse than that. It's always a concern. And some of those hollers, people have homes at the bottom and you get a flash flood like that. That's right. But the good news is it's really jump started our, our fall fescue growing season. So we're, we're starting to think about stockpiling fescue for the fall and, and winter grazing. So it's, it's really started to jump out of the ground. I hope we can stockpile. We are dealing with a pretty major armyworm invasion uh, this fall. Yeah, we've had um, actually two people called me yesterday asking about armyworms. And, and usually we don't have too too bad of a problem with armyworms here in the, in the mountains of North Carolina. Um, but I've had reports that, that we do have them in western North Carolina. 
Um, I talked to some of my colleagues in Auburn yesterday asking about about the armyworm issues just because we usually don't see them up here in this high elevation. And and we think that maybe the the wet year that we've had this year has really caused them to kind of eat everything, continue to move up higher in elevation this year. Um, so anyways, we are dealing with those challenges as well as, as Kentucky. Yeah, I've seen a, a picture from an agent of a fescue field that was close to being ready to cut and it was wiped out. And I remember uh, years ago when I was in Wisconsin, uh, I had a beautiful stand of orchard grass that we were going to get ready to turn in and graze on. And within 24 hours, it looked like it had been mowed for hay. Oh, my goodness. So yeah, they, they can be devastating. They can. And it does not take long for them to 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 do a lot of damage. So if you have army worms, I'd say to, to don't wait, get on top of that and, and figure out some type of, of control method to use on those. Yeah. yeah. So uh, those of you that are interested in more uh, learning more about army worms and control, uh, just reach out to your county extension offices. They've got information on, you know, kind of thresholds on when to spray and what products to use and, considerations if you're going to make hay out of that product or that stand and if there's any restrictions on products that you might use so give them a buzz um this morning i thought um uh Deidre, you and i could visit a little bit you you gave a uh, invited presentation at the national animal science meetings on using brewers grains for livestock feed and north carolina is certainly well known for being kind of a brewing capital of the east coast if you will <laughs> that's right that's right so i'm sure most of you are familiar with Asheville because it's a go-to destination if you're into um if you're a beer enthusiast or or if you're into that kind of craft beer industry that's kind of the first place you think of in the east or east of the mississippi to go to to visit is is Asheville north carolina so i'm about 30 minutes um west of Asheville um, so we get a lot of tourism going on to Asheville to kind of visit that that local brewery scene, um, but but also that really helps us in the cattle industry because we get a lot of brewers grains coming out of the Asheville area as well. I always try to make a, a point when we're coming through there to swing by there because uh, I always like to see what's on the menu beer menu and uh, try something new. It seems like. Um, you know, a lot of those microbreweries and craft breweries there were very creative and coming up with different styles and their own kind of twist on it. But uh, you, you do bring up a good point. There are a lot of brewers grains that are then generated. And unfortunately, a lot of these are in downtown Asheville and there's not a lot of cattle around there. So local producers then have the opportunity to take advantage of those. And so, um, in, in your kind of thinking about the brewery scene itself, what, what has happened in kind of the expansion or increase in uh, craft brewing in North Carolina? Yeah, so I guess we can start back. Um, if you think about, I guess, the, the national brewing industry, you know, if we go back to the early 2000s, um, most of the, the domestic brewery market was controlled by by the big guys, you know, the Anheuser-Busch, the Miller's Coors. But really, um, I guess in the kind of mid-2000s, um, this, this whole craft brewery uh, scene really started to come on board and, and people really started to, to really like being able to go to a local craft brewery right down the street and be able to get that kind of craft beer, if you will. And so really we saw in the mid 2000s, that's really when it started to take off. And that's really when it started to also take off in North Carolina as well. And so we saw that that market share kind of shift from 
from those big guys to really about every small town has now some type of tap room or craft brewery or, or local beer scene. And so in North Carolina, um, in, from about 2010, we had maybe 50 uh, craft breweries. And now we have around, I'm getting close to approaching 400 craft breweries here in North Carolina. So, so we've really seen a pretty big increase um, just over a couple of years um, here in North Carolina. We're t- Right now, we're about eighth in the U.S. in producing um, barrels of beer of craft uh, beer produced. Um, to our state, it's about a 1.8 billion economic impact, um, which is ninth overall in the U.S. Uh, currently, we have about uh, 13,000 full-time employees, and those full-time employees are making, uh, on average, about $46,000 a year. So, so it's a it's a big economic impact to the state of North Carolina for us. Um, so, so we do like our, our, our craft beer scene. It, it adds a lot economically, um, to, to North Carolina, but it, again, it also adds a lot to our beef cattle producers because it, it's a, it's a source of feed for our beef cattle. Yeah, that's, that's incredible growth in that short period of time. And, um, we, we've seen it kind of everywhere, but, um, probably not to quite that extent. And it was interesting as, as you kind of watch, you even had some of the, larger um kind of craft beer manufacturers or producers come in there and set up like if they were a west coast start they came in on the east coast to increase distribution and north carolina seemed to be a hub for that yeah that's right and and you can if you think about um i guess craft craft breweries um there there's a a couple different i guess segments that you can can kind of classify those those breweries into and one of those that you're talking about is kind of the regional craft breweries um thinking sierra nevada would be one of those and so the craft breweries are producing up to six million barrels of beer per year um and so that's one of those that started on the west coast and was trying to find kind of that east coast hub and they landed in Asheville. so so yeah that's that's one of the the big draws again to ash is that they've got this huge brewery. Um, it's beautiful. The landscaping's beautiful. It's a great place to come and hang out. Um, and so that that's kind of one of those draws to Asheville, among other other smaller microbreweries. And the microbreweries are, are producing um, um, up to 15,000 uh, barrels of beer a year. And then we also have the tap rooms and the brew pubs. Um, so we've got a, a lot of a lot of varieties of craft beer and craft um types of places that you can go go have a beverage well with with all of that then uh being there uh there's there's when we go through and we make beer they make beer uh, they're taking the basically the the fermented liquid out and they're left with the grain so that is that brewer's grains tell us a little bit about how it is um able to be used for cattle feed or the nutritional value maybe is a better way. Maybe we should start with what's the nutritional value for livestock feed? Yeah, sure. So one of the reasons that that it is a, a valuable livestock feed is because it is a um, product that's high in, in crude protein. So think about about 28% on average crude protein. Um, it's also really high in digestible energy. So if we start talking about total digestible energy, uh, roughly around 74% TDN, and most of that energy is coming from digestible fiber sources. So when we start thinking about types of energy sources, 
sources. If we think about corn, the energy is coming from starch, um, but this source of energy is coming from fiber. So it really matches well with other types of uh, fiber diets, such as animals that are out grazing or animals on a hay diet. So it really pairs well with those type of, of forage resources, which is what we have here in the fescue belt. Um, so it also has a lot of uh, fat in, in this this feedstuff. Um, think about up to about 10% of the fat. So we do have to kind of be careful when feeding it because we can get too much fat in the diet if we feed too much of this stuff. Um, it has quite a bit of, of phosphorus in it. Um, a little less calcium, so we do have to, to think about the calcium phosphorus ratio. But overall, we've got protein, we've got digestible energy, we've got fat, we've got uh, array of, of vitamins and minerals. Um, but the, the limiting factor, I would say, to using it in a beef cattle diet is honestly the amount of moisture or the amount of water in this stuff. Um, we're looking at about 80% water content in this feed stuff. So it's really wet, which makes it kind of difficult to, to really utilize in some scenarios. That's a good point. And, and also limits our ability maybe to transport it because as fuel prices um, creep up as they have been, you really don't want to haul water up and down the road if you don't have to, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. It gets pretty expensive to, to start hauling water, especially if we we start thinking about our steep mountain passes that we have around western North Carolina. It can get expensive to, to put put water in a truck and haul it around. Um, it, too bad it's not a, a dry feed stuff, but this is what we have. Um, we, it's a very wet feed stuff. It's a very heavy feed stuff. If we could take that moisture out, we would be golden. But that's what we have is is a eighty percent water feed stuff. Um, Another issue that we have is since that, that water weighs so much, it can really start to degrade some of our equipment pretty quickly. Um, I don't know if Kentucky's like North Carolina, but we have a lot of potholes in our roads. We have a lot of roads that probably need to be paved. <laughs> and so the wear and tear on some of our trailers and some of our, our trucks can be pretty detrimental when you're when you're hauling pretty pretty heavy loads of water. <laughs> you're saying that this free or really low cost feed begins to get expensive? It does become pretty expensive <laughs> over, over time and in pretty short time. And, and what we've seen with it is that producers that are, are feeding it, um, some producers have, have found a system that works for them and have been highly successful using it. And then we have some other producers that have fed it for maybe a month or two, and they've decided that that the, the free feed, if you will, is actually not free and is not cost effective for them. Um, yeah. so, so they've you know, we've got some that really makes it work and some that's decided that it's just not cost effective. So just to, to give a reference, because you mentioned this as a, as a good protein source and a good energy source. If we were to think back on comparing it to something a little more common, like maybe corn, as an example, um, what would what would be the comparable TDN values roughly for corn and um, the brewer's grains? Yeah, I think that corn, I think the TDN value for corn, I think is what, maybe around 88%. Um, so we're, we're not quite there. Um, but for a forage-based diet, such as what most of our, our beef cattle guys are, are feeding, maybe a lower quality hay, um, if we're supplementing a, a ground corn to those cattle, we're probably not going to get the 
quite as high digestibility out of that hay as we would if we were supplementing some type of, of fiber-based supplement with that low digestibility or that low quality hay. So, so for us, it works. Um, if you had cattle that maybe you were trying to finish, um, you know, obviously we would not want to feed this, this lower quality hay with. Um, so maybe mixing some corn and, and brewer's grains would be a good idea. Um, but, but for us, it really works well in our forage-based system. Yeah, and, and our hay probably would be in the mid-40s to mid-50s on TDN. So it gives, you know, 74% TDN in brewers is a good energy supplement source then. That's right. That's right. So uh, as you think about this then, um, protein-wise, it's uh, probably in the 18 to 22. Is that going to catch most brewers' grains? Yeah, actually, so just looking at some of the Dairy One Feed Composition Library, um, looking at all the samples that's been submitted to them, on average, it's about 28% is what they're seeing from, from what's been submitted to them. So um, that range is anywhere from 16 to 30. So again, we do have variability coming from the breweries. So it could vary between breweries. It can vary between what type of beer that they are producing. So there is quite a bit of variability um, between loads that you may get be getting if you're feeding this stuff. Yeah, whether I put pumpkins in it or not, right? Because we're getting right. in the fall. Right. <laughs> right. Whether you have a stout, an IPA, whether you have a, uh, yeah, a pumpkin beer that they're about to brew. <laughs> uh, so that that is something to think about, though, is uh, the variability in these um and it will probably change. If you're going to a Miller or a Coors or Sierra Nevada, it's probably going to be a lot more consistent than That's a right. small cap brewer, right? That's right. That's right. Um, they they tend to have, you know, if we think about the the big Anheuser-Busch, you know, they're always brewing that Bud Light or they're always brewing, you know, the the Coors Light. And that that really doesn't change hardly at all. So so you would expect that those grains to be very similar in in nutritive value from load to load. But now you go to a, a small microbrewery and one load that they they brew this IPA and the next one they wanted to have some type of pumpkin spice beer. And so it's going to vary pretty, pretty tremendously. Are there are there um, limitations on you know, with the high moisture content, are there limitations on storage or shelf life or what are some of the recommendations if you're going to feed this to how long to let it hang around and, and that? Yeah. And that's a really good point. And one of the, probably the biggest challenges besides hauling is the storing aspect of this stuff. Since it is so wet that we do see that this stuff starts to go downhill pretty quickly after we get it out from that brewery, it's already hot coming from the brewery. Um, so we can see that that, the spoilage and, and the mold growth starts to, to, to go, you know, skyrocket within 12 to 24 hours after getting this stuff in the brewery. So typically in the summertime, we recommend to feed it within just a few days of getting it. Um, in the wintertime with the cold temperatures, especially up here where we are in the mountains, where, um, you know, we, we oftentimes see below 32 degrees. Um, you may be able to stretch that out for a week, but we've really got to feed this stuff. Uh, pretty quickly. A lot of our really successful producers that have been able to utilize this, um, um, you know, really well into their feeding program, um, go get a, a load every single day and make sure that they feed this stuff out within 24 to 48 hours regularly. They will not let it sit there any longer um, because they know that it starts to spoil and that their cattle will not eat it after after a certain period of time. 
One one of the things that uh, we learned when we were doing some storage demonstrations of wet brewer's grains is that when you have that high fat in there, or it's not really fat, it's corn oil or, or oil from whatever grain, it sets out there in 80 to 90 degree weather and they're unsaturated fatty acids. They go rancid pretty darn quick in that heat and the rancid oil is not a pleasant odor and um, it does impact the uh, palatability of the feed. And so I think for those guys that you mentioned that are using it within 24 to 40 hours, they're probably successful because they're not getting as much rancidity. Palatability is going to be more consistent. Um, and so the cattle just have a more normal intake is my guess. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so if, if you're working with producers on thinking about feeding this, then you, you mentioned a, several things from the nutritional side that are kind of concerns. Um, you know, you mentioned the calcium, the phosphorus ratio, you mentioned the, the fat content. So what are, what are some of the things like generalizations on limits that you might recommend in a forage based beef system? Yeah. Um, typically, uh, based on the work that's been done so far, we wouldn't recommend feeding much over um, about 0.7% of body weight on intake. Um, if you get much over that, it seems that the, the intake on, on fat or those oils become too high and that can actually reduce uh, uh, forage intake. And so that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to, to decrease the amount of forage that they're getting in their diet and, and upset that digestive tract. So keeping it under that kind of 0.7, limit um, seems like a kind of a threshold for what we're wanting to do for, for beef cattle. Um, see some and is that on an as-fed, like fresh from the uh, brewer, or is that on a dry basis? That's on a dry matter basis. Yeah, that's on a dry matter basis. And just some of the other limitations um, that, that kind of we've seen is um, – one of the producers, again, that's been really successful is that that by him feeding this regularly, you know, every single day, he's been able to add more cows to his pasture. So he's had to increase his stocking rate because his grass was um, actually getting ahead of his cows, getting too mature. So just some things to think about about adding this this feed stuff into your your regular feeding protocol that that you're going to, you you know, maybe have to increase your stocking rate some um, if you feed this regularly, even during the spring, summer, fall months when you have grass that's regularly growing. And that's been beneficial for him here in the, the Western North Carolina. Uh, we're a little bit landlocked. We've got a lot of people moving into this area. Um, they're, they're, we're not making any more land if anything farms are going away. So trying to find ways to, to be able to have more production out of the land that we have um, is, is something that we struggle with. And so that's, that's one way that he has found a, a way to do that. Um, some of the other limitations is, is learning how to, how to feed this stuff. It's again, it's a really wet product. Um, so being able to, you know, to be able to feed it, shoveling it into a, a trough is not going to work. You're going to get really tired very quickly of doing that. So having some type of equipment to be able to do that, whether it's a front loader, a skid steer, um, having some type of movable trough to be able to put that stuff in. Uh, we've also seen some fly issues with, with folks that have been feeding this stuff. It seems like the flies really 
uh, prefer brewer's grains and may like to to kind of really come to brewer's grains and maybe lay some eggs or something. We, we're, we're still working on some of the fly issues that, that brewer's grains are causing for us. Um, so those are just some things that we've seen out in the field, I guess. I don't know if that's really scientific, more just a, a you know, observation wise. Um, but it's, you know, it, it works for some, but it doesn't work for all. But really going back to the cost analysis is the key. Yeah. And it, as you think about it too, in, in a lot of our, um, uh, I don't know how to say this. Uh, a lot of our farms will probably have a tractor and they'll have a, a bucket, um, but they may not have a skid loader with a bucket that they can use to scoop and feed routinely. And, and very few of them have a total mix ration wagon or a TMR wagon to be able to mix this with hay. So That's they right. are probably limited to using troughs, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. And I'd say that a lot of them, uh, I guess another limitation is, is the, these microbreweries are brewing every single day. And so their expectation is for you to come pick up grains every single day. And so a lot of times they want you to leave a, a dump trailer there that they can just pour into. Um, so a lot of producers may not have a dump trailer or they may not have multiple dump trailers to be able to leave there. So they want you to bring one to drop off and pick up one at the same time. Um, so I guess the logistics of being able to um, accommodate the brewery and continue to have that working relationship with them is also something that we've seen quite, you know, that's, that's also been a challenge. Um, there's also a seasonality to, to beer production as well. We know that in the summertime, the, the breweries are really cranking up and producing quite a bit of, of beer. And if you think about when we really need to supplement cattle, well, the summertime is really not the time that we think about when we need to supplement. It's really the winter feeding time. Um, and so that creates challenges of, well, can we store this stuff when when they're really producing a lot of it? Because it's very difficult to store um, unless you have maybe an ag bag to put it into. And that's there's still a lot of challenges with that. So there's just a whole lot of challenges with, well, what can we do with this stuff to store it so that we can feed it when when we as beef cattle producers need to supplement our cattle with it? Um, can we, can we really handle this, this much feed? Uh, can we go get it every day? That takes up a lot of time. And most of us don't have a time to drive 15 miles to the brewery and back every single day. So those are some of the challenges that we're seeing. Again, we've got some people that's making it work and, and some that, that will feed it for maybe a month or two and just decide that it's just, just not feasible. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that we don't always think about is that time investment. And you brought up a really good 15 miles doesn't seem like, oh, that's a quick 20 minute trip. But you're you're not going to go that fast, particularly if you're going, to, you know, in the town and you got a trailer behind you. And then you're going to have to unhook the empty, hook up the full, move it out of the way, unhook the full, hook back up the empty and back it back in there. So you're probably almost a two hour round trip, right? That's right. That's right. And we ha we've had some some producers that gone in together that that all three of them have a trailer. So so they have a rotation that that every third day one of them goes. So it's, it's worked out well for them. But just kind of finding that that, you know, solution to the problem of how you can make it work is is the biggest the biggest challenge, I think. And that's that's a great suggestion one that we probably don't think about because we tend to be pretty independent in in agriculture but That's reaching right. out to lo local neighbors and say hey there's this opportunity are you guys interested in seeing if we can make it work that's right and 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 you know 
None of them by themselves could make it work. But when you put all three of those farmers together, they can make that work. And it's not quite the time, you know, the time suck that it would be if it was just one of them going every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's true. Um, As far as thinking about quote unquote, it's free or I've got it and they're making a lot of it in the summer and I really don't need it. Are there issues or can there be issues of overfeeding? Yes, I would, I would say there can be. Um, So it's, you know, it's, it's nutrient dense feed stuff. And, and we've seen mama cows that have been fed this every single day that are in a body condition score of a seven, um, maybe pushing even an eight that don't have a calf by their side that are about to start calving. And so there could be issues with, well, they're, they're already pretty fat, probably a little over conditioned already. Um, so I think that there may be, may be some challenges to that, to, to try to not get those cows over conditioned. Um, but on the flip side of things in the winter time, when, when we're primarily, our state is a primarily fall calving, calving state, when those cows are in, in peak lactation in the fall and winter months, when they've got that baby calf nursing by their side, it could be a great supplement tool to keep them in good body condition, uh, make sure that we get them bred back. So it, it could be a good tool, but we just have to make sure that we're managing it appropriately. Yeah. And that's, that's where even maybe thinking about, um, if, if I were a producer having a split spring and fall calving herd and being able to utilize it, you know, during those high nutritional demand periods and lactation. So works good in the fall calvers during the winter. And then when there's a lot of availability in the summer and we tend to get a little droughty and forage production isn't very good, then on those spring calving herds, it would really help out there too. Yeah, that's right. And and we haven't seen those challenges um, for the, the, the droughtiness this summer or the last really two or three years. We've been very very fortunate to have plenty of rain, but in, in a, in a summer that we have a lot of drought, the, the brewer's grains could really be beneficial for our area for sure. So as we think about, uh, this product being locally available, um, do you, do you see them increasing? I mean, are you getting more interest from producers and getting more questions coming in? Yeah, I, I honestly, I think it kind of comes in waves. Um, it, it seems like there's a steady amount of questions that are coming in all the time, um, usually by, by producers that are, are about to try it or interested in trying it. And then, you know, they, they say, well, it's just maybe too much work. And then I'll have the next group of folks come in. But then we have a set group of producers who have been using Brewer's Grains for a really long time. And they continue to, I guess, push the the what we know from science from from a science standpoint about what they can utilize it how they can utilize it and they continue to push us from a science standpoint about the questions they have so so it's kind of a i guess a two-part system for those that are continually rotationally you know coming and going using it and those that have been very successful and kind of want to take it to the next level if you will did the COVID impact on meat supplies and then this local beef boom did that spark any increased interest? Yes, that's a great question. We've had a huge interest um, in the local meat supply and utilizing brewers' grains. And I do think that that's probably a, a area of interest of where we can use brewers' grains to, to really help with our locally produced beef. Um, 
obviously we don't produce a lot of corn grain in this area. Um, so, so having these wet brewers grains and being able to finish cattle on wet brewers grains could be really beneficial to our area. Recently in this past year, we've had a lot of uh, financial uh, stimulation going into being able to increase slaughter capacity in our state. So going forward, I think that we're going to have a lot of work ahead of us. Which is, which is good because it's, you know, we're, we're kind of upscaling these feedstuffs into a high quality protein source and it's locally available and um, it just kind of helps, you know, rather than going into a landfill, it certainly is, is better to go into livestock feed and, and give those farmers an opportunity to maybe have a lower cost of production and, and keep that whole farming system a little bit more economically sustainable. That's right. And and one area of growth that, that I know that this podcast really isn't about is, is in the small ruminant area. We do have a lot of small ruminants and we have a large um, slaughter capacity for small ruminants that we're currently bringing into the state. So I think that that's an area that these wet brewers grants is going to have a big impact on in the future as well. That's a great point because, you know, there's still ruminants and, and they can utilize them just like cattle. And so That's that right. sheep and goat market, uh, gosh, somebody called me the other day about uh, growing some lambs and they were telling me the prices because I haven't followed them lately. I was floored at the prices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. they are rocking and a rolling. <laughs> You know, we, we raised sheep for almost 20, 25 years when I was a kid growing up, and we never got close to the prices they are right now. That's right. Yeah, and I, I forget how many thousands of, of lambs we're bringing into the state to slaughter every year. It's it's remarkable. So, and we've got a lot of pastures that, that's hard to get, you know, equipment on that are great for small ruminants. So going forward, I think there's a, a big opportunity for for small ruminants and, and brewer's grains. Uh, and um, Gabe and I visited a, f- a few weeks back and we were talking about uh, civil pastoral systems. And so, you know, in your area, that that's another opportunity yeah. for those small ruminants. That's right. That's right. Well, Deidre, I think we've kind of hit all the, the big highlights on uh, brewer's grains. Is there anything else that kind of comes to mind as we get ready to wrap up here on either if you're thinking about feeding it or um, wanting to get into it, what's a good approach to kind of uh, get started in feeding it? Yeah, I would just, you know, I would suggest trying it and just think about some of the, the think through some of the challenges of, of utilizing it from, from the hauling standpoint, from the feeding standpoint, those seems to be the, I guess the two biggest challenges of, of producers who, who have been using it. It's a, it's a great feed stuff. Um, cattle seem to do very well on it. Um, so if you have any questions or anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to, to answer those. Please feel free to email me or, or call me. Sounds great. Well, uh, again, I want to thank you. Um, today we were joined by Dr. Deidre Harmon, who's uh, a, a beef research and extension specialist at North Carolina State University. And uh, we were chatting about all the great opportunities for spent grains, uh, brewer's grains from the brewing industry. Uh, Deidre, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Beef Bits podcast. We hope you found it enjoyable and informative. Be sure to subscribe to the Beef Bits podcast for future episodes as well as listen to previous ones. Until next time, be safe and reach out to your county extension office for more information on beef management topics.